When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Thanks to PhysicianLoans.com for helping support free open access medical education and this podcast. Medical students and doctors have unique needs when it comes to buying a home. Whether you're a medical student, about to start your residency, or a bit further along in your career, the team at Physician Loans will help you both navigate the complexities of the home buying process and secure the financing you need. See PhysicianLoans.com for more information. Welcome to the Inside the Boards podcast, the podcast dedicated to helping you learn to think like a question writer so you can study smarter, not harder, and succeed in medical school. And now here's your host, Patrick Beeman. All right, welcome to the Inside the Boards podcast. This is the first in our Step 1 Study Smarter series. Today, we want to just give a little bit of an overview of what our plans are from here on out until the end of May sometime or early June. I have Patrick here. That's me. I am your usual host and have been writing questions or editing them for various medical education review companies. Uh, since I was a medical student, uh, approximately my second year, I've contributed to case files and three major QBanks, and in the process have learned a lot about what it takes to answer questions in a board-style format. And today we are introducing Stuart Bryant, who is the newly minted producer of the ITB podcast. Stuart, please <laughs> tell us a little bit about yourself. Excellent. Hi, guys. So uh, like Patrick said, my name is Stuart Bryant. I'm a second year medical student. Uh, like Patrick, I'm kind of dabbling in some things that I find interesting, which is podcasting. I went to Clemson University. I went straight into medical school, and now I'm taking a little bit of time off, hopefully uh, in my interest of pursuing, you know, becoming a doctor and wanting to know and do well on the boards, I can help you guys and you know, maybe be a bit of a guinea pig for test questions and board-related materials, so you don't have to worry so much about it. <laughs> yes, that is actually why we asked you to come aboard, so I'm glad that you offered yourself as a sacrifice. <laughs> yeah, I, I knew a little bit what I was getting into, but yeah, that's okay. Well, you'll be fairly compensated. Uh, <laughs> and then everybody probably knows Elizabeth, uh, who is among other things, also my wife. What's going on in your world over in Cincinnati right now? Well, so I'm in the middle of my second year of residency at University of Cincinnati for psychiatry, and I'm actually on nights right now. So oh. kind of sleepy. 
the step one study smarter series. So, uh, Liz, why why did we why did we want to do a step one study smarter series? Because we felt like the inside the boards platform, which really is that our inside the boards brand was all about teaching medical students how to approach questions the way that the way that they would if they were a question writer if they really had a good understanding of what kind of material is going to be tested and uh, what kind of material question writers would be able to implement on the real exam that we thought that that would help them study better so as you've been doing your podcast your question dissections have been very popular with your guests and we've gotten a lot of really good feedback that the advice that you've been able to give has been very helpful to medical students and helped them to study smarter, not harder. We wanted to specifically aid medical students studying for step one, which is kind of the big exam of medical school that we feel like if they can get a good foundation of how to approach questions for step one, it's really going to help them for the rest of their medical school career and the rest of the examinations they have to take. Exactly. So a few things. Why are we doing this? Number one, because we want to help you study smarter, not harder. Secondly, because you asked. Uh, a lot of the feedback that we have got has focused on uh, thanking us for the content that we're putting out, specifically the practice question dissections. And then thirdly, we wanted to impose a little bit more of a structure onto this podcast. So that's why we're dedicating, you know, the next few months studying for step one material. And in my mind, so I wrote an article for Student Doctor in January that was titled, Board's Preparation is a Marathon, Not a Sprint. And in my mind, a lot of students put off studying for step one or level one of the Comlex until their dedicated prep time, 48 weeks before the actual test is supposed to be taken. But that's not the best approach. Yes, you have to study for your second year content. Many of you are probably going through like a repro block now or maybe a neuro block or some organ systems, depending on how your curriculum's going at your particular school. But at the same time, you don't want to forget or have to relearn those first year subjects like traditionally anatomy, neurosciences, behavioral sciences. Our goal here is to be sort of a pre-preparation prior to your dedicated step one study time. And therefore, you can follow along with this step one study smarter series. We're going to treat it a little bit like a college course. So there's a syllabus. So go to insidetheboards.com slash podcast to follow along to see what exactly we're going to cover and in what order. As always, if you have feedback or things you think we could do to improve it, send your comments to podcast at insidetheboards.com. So it's going to be comprehensive, right? We're going to try to touch upon something related to every kind of main subject within the preclinical years. It doesn't aim to be exhaustive. We're not going to cover everything you need to know, we are going to try to cover something high yield that you can take with you on exam day from each of the main subjects. We can't do this alone. This is a lot of work. Podcasting is a lot of work. So a lot of past guests and new friends are going to join us to help us with our main Study Smarter series episodes, which will be a lot like the ones we've done in the past where we interview an expert. But 
we're going to be focusing more heavily upon practice question dissections. We've got people from Conrad Fisher's MedQuest, from Osmosis, Emily Tan from the White Coat Coaching Podcast and platform, aimed at students interested in ortho. I've got various authors of textbooks you're probably using or have used, like Ken Rosenthal, uh, author of Rapid Review, Microbiology and Immunology, some new kids on the block like Rhett and Michael from Physio, which aims to be the pathoma of physiology, med school tutors. There's a bunch of them. Look for us to cover biochem, cardiovascular, derm, endocrine, GI, genetics, hemonc, neuro, repro, behavioral sciences, pulm, renal, MSK, and opto. And for you osteopathic listeners, osteopathic manipulative medicine. We're going to have one to two episodes for each of these subjects. But you may be thinking, well, what about farm and micro? Those are huge subjects. Are you just going to ignore those? And the answer is no, we're not. So how are we going to cover farm and micro? So I'll be doing a series of mini episodes with some potential guest host experts as well. But these episodes will only be one or two questions. And they're only going to be about the really high-yield microbiology and pharmacology that you might need to know for step one. We'll try to pair them up, if possible, with the episode that Patrick is doing every week. As you listen along, please keep in mind that we want as many people to listen to the podcast as possible. So we're giving away $50 Amazon gift card to one listener at the end of this series. We'll announce at the end of May or so. Those who share the ITB podcast on social media and tag us at Boards Insider on Twitter or Facebook.com slash Inside the Boards or Instagram at Inside the Boards. Patrick, I think you should remind them that despite the fact that you have like 20,000 listeners, people assume that so many people are, are entering these kind of contests and so they don't always enter. So a lot of times we have very few people. So your chances are pretty high of actually winning if you do, right? Plus we really need the feedback. Exactly. We want to make it better. So yeah. So tag us on Twitter at Boards Insider or at Inside the Boards on Facebook or Instagram and share the Inside the Boards podcast. Or you can leave a rating or review of the show on iTunes and send the screenshot to podcast at Inside the Boards. Either way you do it, you'll be entered to win the contest. And then because we are trying to and have tried to devote some sort of like didactic content to each episode, let's go through a question as the example or type of thing that Elizabeth is going to be doing for our mini episode. This is going to be a mini episode within a regular episode right now. Whoa. Get ready. So exciting. Mini episode-ception. This will be our first mini episode, and it's going to be a pharmacology episode, a little bit of anatomy in the stem to go along with the first episode Patrick's got coming for you. Without further ado, a one-month-old infant is brought by her mother to the office for an examination. She was born via an uncomplicated spontaneous vaginal delivery to a 27-year-old Gravita 1 Para 1. Physical examination shows a small hairy patch over her lower lumbar region, ventricular septal defect, cleft palate, a short nose with upturned nostrils and a wide bridge, 
thin eyebrows and a smooth philtrum, which of the following medications is the most likely cause? And our answer choices are A. Aspirin B. Doxycycline C. Fluoxetine D. Morphine or E. Valproate Patrick and Stuart, what do you both think the correct answer is? Since you're here, we can include you on this one. Let's put Stuart in the hot seat since he actually will have to take step one. Actually, the way my school works is we kind of integrate all the subjects and we're doing neuropsych behavior stuff right now. That means I really shouldn't know the answer to this question. (laughs) So I use process of elimination to go through this. You know, I feel like if you're going to have birth defects, aspirin is not going to be an over-the-counter medication. I know doxycycline can cause your teeth or bones to change color or something. Mm -hmm. Floxetine, I have no idea. It's probably some sort of mood stabilizer. Morphine, again, it's mainly for pain reduction Mm -hmm. or to help with, you know, breathing. So I'm just going to go with E, Valproate. I have no idea what it does, but... You know, I, I like that answer better than the others. Yeah, that's a good approach, and it's correct. So that brings up a good point. Like, sometimes you don't definitely know the answer to a question prior to looking at each of the answer choices. So maybe before we continue the discussion, though, let's kind of just look at the anatomy of a question, right? So on your... Step one exam, if you're an MD student on your level one, if you are an osteopathic student, the vast majority of your questions are going to be single best answer, right? So we all probably kind of know that, but what exactly does it mean? The single best answer question is going to have a few components, the vignette, And this will help us just have a common vocabulary. But the vignette is the patient's story, the presentation, right? The paragraph-long thing you have to get to before you get to the meat or the most important portion of an item, and that is the interrogatory. And that's the actual question. Sometimes you'll hear me refer to it as a lead-in. And then it's going to be followed by at least four answer choices, but most often five for NBME, USMLE students. Do you know a maximum number that they can do? 26, I believe. (laughs) Something ridiculous. (laughs) No, I'm serious. It is actually, I think, limited only by the letters of the alphabet. Wow. I would die if I had to go through 26 answer choices. (laughs) And that's painful. So those answer choices are most properly referred to as the correct answer. But really, it's the most correct answer because sometimes there might be 26, probably not. There could be five choices, all of which are kind of correct. They might actually end up being the answer to uh, or the cause of some disease or the treatment for some condition. But the correct answer, the one that gets you a point and is scored as correct on the exam, is going to be single, hence single item choices. The rest are called distractors. There's our common vocabulary uh, for approaching and discussing these sorts of things. I guess just to go with Stuart's approach, because we have all been in a process of elimination uh, kind of situation when it comes to a, a test. That is one way if you don't know the answer choice off the bat. But as you study, 
you need to keep in mind that the way these test items are constructed by faculty um, and contributors all around at various med schools and submitted and then vetted by the NBME or the NBOME, they all have to follow a kind of stringent set of criteria, one of which is the cover the answers test. So anytime you see a vignette followed by an interrogatory like this one, which of the following medications is the most likely cause, you should be able to come up with a medication that is the cause of this constellation of findings in this, this particular instance. The advice often given, and this is something that you have to try for yourself to see what works best, because in my mind, or the way I have done this, is I tend to just read through the entirety of the vignette. But when I'm really stuck, and I know other people will approach questions on an exam differently, is to try a systematic process to every single one that you either study with in your practice QBank or on the actual exam. So one option is to look at the interrogatory first. Which of the following medications is the most likely cause? So you know it's going to be a medication. And then from there, you have two options. You can go back to the vignette and think about medications that could account for the constellation of findings. Or after reading the interrogatory, you could look at the answer choices and see if anything resonates with you from that list of choices as you read the vignette. I would advise that if you're using any modern QBank and you haven't come down with a process that works for you, that you would apply either of those, starting with the interrogatory, looking at the answers and going back to the vignette, or starting with the interrogatory, going back to the vignette, and then looking at the answers to see which one gets you a better score. You can test all this stuff with modern QBanks, and you might find that if I do 150 questions one way and 150 questions the other, I actually tend to score better and have more confidence when I approach it in one way versus the other. But I do kind of think that that has to be a personal choice and something you learn about yourself. My recommendation would actually be to start by reading the interrogatory, then looking at the vignette, then co covering the answer choices um, mentally or physically and trying to come up with an answer and writing it down. And then you might find that had you done that for this particular instance, so you have a vignette that says one month old kid, basically with physical defects showing a small hairy patch over a lower lumbar region, VSD, cleft palate, short nose with upturned nostrils, wide bridge, thin eyebrows, and smooth philtrum. And then you find which of the following medications the most likely cause. If you cover up those answer choices, there are a few drugs which could account for that. But if you make the commitment to one of those drugs prior to looking at the answer choices, you might find that you're less likely to be conflicted about which thing to choose, even if the answer that you wrote down is not indeed listed, it's in the same category. So I don't know. What are your thoughts on that? Just to reiterate what you said, and you know, you'll find that it's useful even in medical school to read the interrogatory statement before you go through the whole vignette. In fact, 
my school will take a makes a point of making these long-winded question vignettes before they ha- ask a really simple question just to get you into the habit of doing that. But to go off of that, if I do that and then I read the answer choices, in my head I'm thinking there's some sort of folate deficiency or something of that nature that's causing these like physical defects. Yeah. You know, my first my first guess is going to be like methotrexate. Then I get to the answers and methotrexate's not there. So now I kind of had to backstep and think about, you know, what else causes these folate deficiencies or what doesn't cause these folate deficiencies. Exactly. And that's and that's a good way of rationally approaching the process of elimination. So all right, Liz, take us through why this is correct. Why is it valproic acid or valproate? So Stuart was right on about the folic acid deficiency. I also, so I, I want to talk a little bit about that and then we'll kind of go through the choices. But I also liked about the way that Stuart approached the question rationally, kind of not having necessarily a good idea about what birth defects would be associated with all of the medicines and even with a little bit of unfamiliarity with what the medicines do, which is how, I mean, that happens to all of us on board exam questions. I thought that the rational approach that he used in saying, well, aspirin is over the counter. And I think in his mind was kind of saying, this is obviously some very severe multiple organ systems involved defects. Most over the counter medications aren't going to have those kind of associated symptoms as far as being teratogenic during pregnancy or they would more likely be a prescription medication. Wouldn't that be true, Patrick? I would think alcohol is probably one of the only... How many times do I have to tell you that is not a medication? (laughs) It is not an over-the-counter medication. But with the exception of alcohol, most legal substances that you could ingest, I guess, that you could purchase over-the-counter aren't going to have these kind of obviously severe in nature birth defects. So I thought that his approach was good to eliminate aspirin. He's like, I don't know exactly what aspirin might do, but I know it's over the counter. It doesn't seem like it would be a big deal necessarily. I knew it didn't have anything to do with folic acid. That was really where, you know, I, I kind of read Harry Patch and I go, mm. oh, they had a closure defect, mm-hmm. something with folic acid. And I'm thinking, what doesn't have that problem or what doesn't have that effect i have no idea how aspirin would affect folic acid and it it could but in the first and second year curriculum they definitely don't get into that that's true i don't know how it could either (laughs) (laughs) but see and that's another good point is a lot of us don't know everything there is to know about medications that we prescribe or will prescribe once for physicians or those that we we can take over the counter or otherwise as patients But in medicine, and then even more specifically for the boards, you definitely don't have to know all that stuff. You only have to kind of know, for many things, a few things about whatever you're discussing. So what do you need to know about aspirin? For the purposes of step one, aspirin is not really going to likely be a answer that you would associate with teratogenic effects during pregnancy. That kind of would eliminate it. I think his gut instinct was correct there. In high doses, aspirin can cause premature closure of the ductus arteriosus, which can lead to pulmonary hypertension in in neonates. And that's what I would say is if you only had to remember one thing about aspirin for the boards and what it causes is that NSAIDs in general 
are associated with premature closure of the ductus arteriosus. And actually SSRIs, to skip ahead a little bit, are also. So the other things that I think that you should know about aspirin for the boards are associated with aspirin use in children. So children younger than age two should never be given aspirin because of the risk for Rye syndrome. What? Why are you saying that? Did you give our baby aspirin? No, I did not. I'm, I'm, that was only a joke. <laughs> well, that's actually pretty smart, too, because if aspirin was the answer they wanted you to pick, the vignette would have signs and symptoms that point to Rye syndrome. True, true. So Rye syndrome, the only thing you really need to know is that children should not be given aspirin under age two because of the risk of a hepatic encephalopathy called Rye syndrome. However... There is one instance when you do give children aspirin under age two, and that is for treatment of Kawasaki disease. And actually, aspirin is the first-line treatment along with IVIG. So aspirin along with IVIG is actually the only time that you're going to give aspirin to an infant. And that's really the most important things to know for step one. I agree. And then I would say that if you had a little bit of more space in your mind, things to remember for aspirin on the boards would be that it uniquely causes a mixed metabolic acidosis and respiratory alkalosis. It is unique among uh, medications that, that cause mm. that. And we will probably save a more complete discussion when we can get an expert to go through acid-based disorders because I'm an OBGYN and I don't want to deal with that anymore. You have to deal with it, Stuart. Yeah, we can talk about salicylate toxicity, but it might be best left to another like discussion to get into the acid base and include that. But that's another place where they might throw aspirin on the boards. It's a, a patient that comes in with like fever, nausea, vomiting, that kind of stuff. And they're trying to trick you into seeing that they've overdosed on aspirin. Mm. We'll look for a question, and we'll try to cover one specifically related to that issue uh, throughout this series. So stay tuned. Listen, we'll save it for the end. That way people will keep listening. They're like, oh, man, I wanted to know about All that. I want to know is that aspirin. I have to listen to every episode. So the other thing I would say is this. As you study, specifically practice questions. Okay. So in my mind, um, just a reminder, yes, I'm an OBGYN, as I remind you on every episode, um, but I've been out of med school for six years, so I took step one eight years ago. Um, I've kept current with a lot of this stuff through writing and editing questions for board review companies and whatnot. Still, when I see this, like aspirin is a choice, my mind reflexively goes to a few associated facts. So if we're saying that NSAIDs are associated with closure prematurely of the ductus arteriosus when taken by moms prenatally, the thing or the corollary to that is that you need to know how to keep a ductus arteriosus open open if you need to keep it open because the child has some sort of congenital cardiac anomaly. And the medication that keeps it open is... Prostaglandin. Do you know what the drug is that they use to keep a ductus arteriosus open? Alprostadil. Alprostadil. That one you can take to the bank with you. So alprostadil or prostaglandins. If NSAIDs, you know, are like the anti-prostaglandin, uh, it makes it simple. 
And that's how you should think about this when you study is, what else related to the boards do I need to know about this distractor? Either it's obverse or other associated things. There, we covered aspirin. I never have to mention <laughs> that again. Our ch choice B was doxycycline. Right, so doxycycline is a tetracyclic antibiotic. And as with all tetracyclic antibiotics, it does have one birth defect that Stuart actually correctly associated. Do you remember what you said, Stuart, about doxycycline? If he doesn't remember what he said 10 minutes ago, God help him. I'm going to have a lot of trouble on the boards. I know one thing about tetracyclines is if you're giving them before uh, closure of epiphyseal plate, for bone development, then it can cause staining in bone that's being formed at the time, which can lead to, for instance, in a baby, their teeth having the stained color. Yeah. So that's the big association for tetracyclines uh, during pregnancy. I think that's the most important thing to know. I guess I would say, and just a reminder that doxycycline as a tetracycline also is associated with photosensitivity as a side effect. And its mechanism, just as a reminder. It's bacteriostatic, binds to the 30S. 30S ribosome. Mm -hmm. That's what's important. Yeah. And it treats chronic Lyme it disease. It treats rickettsial infections. <laughs> Are you going to let me no, go with I'm that? No, I'm not going to let you go with You can remember the, the palms and soles rash in Coxsackie virus, um, Rocky Mountain spotted fever. Yeah, I'm not allowed to get that one wrong. Why not? My mom almost died of Rocky Mountain spotted fever because the doctors didn't recognize her symptoms until she had the pinwheel petechiae oh my on her gosh. skin. Wow, your mom almost gave her life so that you could get a question right <laughs> on the USMLE. That was the point, is just so I would get that one question. She's devoted. Yeah. She really wants him to be a doctor. I mean, we would all be nowhere, uh, each of us here, without our mothers. That's true. But yes, you should at least put that as a thank you in a Mother's Day card. That's some free advice not related to the board that I, I'm <laughs> offering to everyone. I have to keep that. <laughs> so can treat Rocky Mountain spotted fever and Lyme disease. Mm -hmm. Can treat, which is Borrelia burgdorferi, and chlamydia. Treats chlamydia. It does. I don't give it too often for chlamydia. I prefer azithromycin. And Stuart started to touch on this. It does cause some inhibited bone growth. I think the more obvious sign that could be a, a better clue for you to remember is definitely the discolored teeth. You can remember its association with, like he said, uh, prior to the closure of the epiphyseal plate. So if you can associate it with bone abnormalities, specifically the staining, I think that is going to be the most high yield, because when you think about how a question writer could ask you about it, the tooth staining is pretty specific. Inhibited bone growth or describing a small baby doesn't really narrow your options down enough, so they couldn't really test you on that fact alone. But knowing that it causes tooth staining, that's pretty specific. All right, fluoxetine, that was choice C. And you said something about fluoxetine you knew was kind of a psychiatric medication. Usually we would never mention the name of brand medication because you're never going to have a brand name, as you know, on the boards. However, because this is such a common brand name and may help you kind of associate some real-world experience or some real-world knowledge of this drug, I'm going to go ahead and tell you that fluoxetine is also called Prozac. 
I have to say that with the disclosure that we are in no way endorsed by Eli Lilly, who is the manufacturer of Prozac. However, we would be happy to. We are really not supported by any drug company, but feel free to send checks to Inside the Boards. We will put it back into better giveaways or something. Exactly. So, but the good thing to know is that SSRIs do not really have a strong association with birth defects. For step one, you need to know that selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors, SSRIs, can, like the NSAIDs, be associated at high doses with premature closure of the ductus arteriosus. That would be really the only kind of associated birth defect that you would want to know. But really, wouldn't you say, too, that that tends to be more of a concern at a a higher level of clinical training than, than step one? I agree. That was That's not really something that's probably not going to be on step one. could be on your shelf exam. I believe it could be in the scope of what would be on step one, but it's definitely not as strong of an association with that premature closure in SSRIs as it was with the NSAIDs that we mentioned. Uh, they're actually pretty safe in pregnancy. Among the answer choices that we have, these are probably some of the safest. This is probably the safest drug in pregnancy. So knowing it's safe in pregnancy would probably make you not pick it. If you were able to correctly identify it was in the class of medications that are SSRIs. The other SSRIs we have are paroxetine, sertraline, and citalopram. Paroxetine has its own group of problems, but still is in the, the class of SSRIs and it's pretty safe. And then our next answer choice is D-morphine. And as Stuart said, morphine is an opioid agonist that's primarily used in the management of pain. The clinical significance of morphine exposure during pregnancy would be concern that the fetus could potentially have signs of withdrawal after birth because it is an opioid agonist the same way that oxycodone, fentanyl, morphine, certainly heroin, IV drug use. These fetuses may also have an opioid withdrawal syndrome. What's that look like? Typically looks like irritable babies that cry a lot, may have some failure to thrive, like they're not eating well, they don't uh, nurse well, they may be more hyperactive, not wanting to sleep, um, those kind of symptoms. It's typically pretty mild. In more severe cases, doctors may choose to give some opioid agonist. So morphine, to associate it with things related to pregnancy or taken during pregnancy would be neonatal abstinence syndrome. Anything else high yield to know about? Yeah, the mechanism of action for opioids, just to know that they work at the primarily mu opioid receptors for pain and cause opening of potassium channels and essentially just decrease synaptic transmission, which is how they kind of inhibit the neurons from firing, and thereby inhibit release of acetylcholine, norepinephrine, serotonin, um, substance P. Those kind of things might be important for you to know as, how, as far as how they modulate pain. I know you want to go into this more being in psychiatry, but we, we got to give them something they can take with them, at least metaphorically, meaning metaphorically, on their step one exam. Okay. Yeah, you can't walk in with the podcast to the step. You cannot walk into your step one with the podcast at all. Oh. Don't try to do that, please. We will deny any involvement. <laughs> so then we get to our correct answer choice, valproate. 
and valproate belongs to the group of medications that are used both in my field in psychiatry as far as in the treatment of mood disorders as well as anti-epileptic medications. So this is considered a mood stabilizer and also an anti-seizure medicine. Like most anti-epileptics, they are associated with neural tube defects because of blocking folate. And so the neural tube defect that we can see in the vignette, which Stuart mentioned, is this hairy patch over the lower lumbar region of this baby. That is also called what, Stuart? Uh, spina exactly. bifida. It's actually spina bifida occulta. Yes. <laughs> I'm just kidding. The occulta part is, is that it's hidden, that it's not. there's no protrusion of the canal like outside the body. Patrick, what other anti-epileptic or anti-seizure drugs might we associate folate deficiencies with? Um, actually, it's probably inappropriate for you to ask me because I'm an attending and you're a resident and you should never pimp up. That's true. But maybe carbamazepine? Mm-hmm. So also phenytoin, also phenobarbital. Carbamazepine, those are all anti-seizure drugs. They all inhibit folic acid in some way, and because folic acid is needed for proper closure of the neural tube during development, this is why we see these neural tube defects. So what other neural tube defects might a question stem describe in a female that had some kind of folic acid deficiency or had been on one of these folic acid inhibiting medications? You just violated the cardinal rule after I told you not. (laughs) I mean, I guess worsened forms of failure of the neural tube to close properly, like anencephaly. That'd be a bad one. Yeah. Holoprosencephaly. That's a bad one. So myelomeningocele. I think it's enough to say neural tube defects. What do you think, Stuart? If I say neural tube Uh, defect, do you associate spina bifida, occulta with myelomeningocele, anencephaly? I do, you know, in my head, I don't immediately think of those things, but if I see them on a test, I know. That's a neural tube defect? So if those were the answer choices, for instance, I'd be like, well, all of those are neural tube defects. I think that's good enough, and that's probably what most of, like, first aid, yeah, like a review text is going to say. What else for Valproate? So anything that blocks folate, like the anti-epileptic drugs, also methotrexate, which Stewart did mention. And also trimethoprim. Those ones all block folate, and they are all associated with neural tube defects. So you could see anything from complete absence of the brain to some kind of protrusion of the spinal column somewhere from brain to spinal cord. So the other important thing to know about them is that they are also associated with the cardiac defects we see described in the vignette as a ventricular septal defect which is the most common cardiac defect overall. We also see them associated with cleft palate, cleft lips, and abnormal facies, which is described in the vignette as upturned nostrils and a wide bridge, thin eyebrows, and a smooth philtrum. And that smooth philtrum part is also seen with a variety of other in utero exposures to agents such as, do you know what this, what I'm thinking of? Stuart. Can you read my mind? Can you read my mind? We're preparing him for third year. <laughs> I might be thinking of something completely different, but when I see like yeah. the wide bridge, thin eyebrows, smooth filtrum, I'm thinking of fetal alcohol syndrome. Exactly. Right? And then to a lesser extent, 
but this wouldn't be from exposure, but Down syndrome. Mm -hmm. I think those have a lot yeah. of the same hallmark yeah, that's features. That's true. And then with fetal alcohol exposure, we'd also often they will describe like shortened palpebral fissures, epicanthal folds. That is the most high-yield information, I think, to know about valproic acid for step one. And the nice thing about valproate, and this is totally just a hack here, since it can cause this folate problem, one thing you can remember is if you rearrange the L in the valproate and put it between the O and the A, it becomes prolate, O-L-A-T-E. Yeah. Kind of like in folate, hmm. which could help you remember oh, that. Oh, I like that. Folate and valproate that's a good one so creating your own mnemonics is actually probably the most effective way to remember something that you yourself have a hard time uh keeping straight that might not work for everyone but there might be but it works but for it me. works for you and it <laughs> might be something that someone else hasn't thought of excellent that's that's really good advice see you, you should take your step one right now you don't need to like take all this time to Listen to a podcast yeah. series for 12 weeks. Right. Study yeah, UWorld. Exactly. Just take it right now. <laughs> and I guess the other thing to remember is that this is why, in general, women who are about to become pregnant or who are in early pregnancy, especially before about eight weeks gestational age, should be on supplementary folic acid, which helps decrease the incidence of spina bifida and open neural tube defects in general. That is our approach to how we're going to be dealing with questions and covering this material. Elizabeth is going to be handling farm and micro in many episodes, which we'll try to keep to about 10 minutes just to give you a little high yield fact, additional facts to know in addition to our regular scheduled programming. I guess I would say our mini episodes are going to be focused on question dissections. Elizabeth is going to be handling those. They're probably going to try to stick around 10 minutes for those in particular portions of the Step 1 Study Smarter series. Thank you for joining us. We look forward to being able to help you prepare for Step 1. It's a beast. It's a one-day exam. There are seven 60-minute blocks, eight hours long, 40 questions per block for up to 280 questions, which is similar to your level one for you osteopathic students, which is a test composed of 400 questions in two four-hour sessions, so also eight hours, a total of up to 400 questions in eight total blocks. So pretty similar, but you guys also have to learn OMM content, so I'm sorry. <laughs> we will be with you on this journey as you make a plan, approach this material. Stay tuned to our next episode with Ken Rosenthal, author of Rapid Review Microbiology and Immunology. He is going to provide an approach to learning each of the bugs and reviewing those that you need to know the top bugs you need to know for the boards, and then a promised interview on learning immunology in under 20 minutes. Stay tuned for those, and keep checking the website insidetheboards.com slash podcast for more advice on creating your study schedule. And thanks again.
Inside the Boards is in no way affiliated with the United States Medical Licensing Examination, Comprehensive Osteopathic Medical License Examination, National Board of Medical Examiners, the National Council of State Boards of Nursing, National Board of Osteopathic Medical Examiners, or any other licensing or examination body. All exam names and other trademarks are the property of the respective trademark owners. Content discussed during the program is the property of inside the boards or the attributed trademark owner and may not be reproduced without permission from the appropriate entity. Inside the Boards fully adheres to the respective policies on irregular behavior outlined by the aforementioned credentialing bodies.